This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two segments this week, three guests. First up, Sam Amick. He is a national NBA writer for The Athletic, and we discuss the start of the season, how much China will consume the coverage of the NBA this year, whether parity, which is what the NBA looks like, at least in the post-Warriors era, uh, whether that helps the league in terms of media coverage, in terms of viewership, some of the more interesting stories and interesting teams. If you're an NBA fan, you know who Sam Amick is, one of the most respected people in the sport, and I think you'll enjoy that conversation. That is followed by... uh, a uh, 12-minute stretch or so with Ian Dark and Taylor Twelman on their chemistry and their relationship and uh, how to develop on-air chemistry between partners, why it works for them, uh, the use of humor in a sports broadcast. They came up to Toronto not too long ago, and I was able to do a quick sit-down with them. So Sam Mamick first, followed by Ian Dark and Taylor Twelman, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, as I said at the top, Sam Amick is a national NBA writer for The Athletic and one of the respected uh, voices in the sport. He previously worked for Sports Illustrated, USA Today, and the Sacramento Bee. And he's kind enough to join us on the Sports Media Podcast on the eve of the 2019-2020 regular season. Sam, it's a big, big moment for you, Sam. It's the start of another season. You, you have taken all your vitamins. You're ready, you're, you're ready to go. Richard, I'm I'm ready to go. Um, I, I'm one of the few athletic national folks who will not be in LA for Clippers Lakers. I'm I'm going to head out to Houston on Wednesday and and take a little dive into the Rockets story. They've got a a great slate of start of season games. They go Milwaukee, New Orleans, and OKC for the Chris Paul Russell Westbrook reunion right out the, the gate. So I am excited, man. I mean, you know what? You know, you and I have both been doing this for a while now, obviously shared some time at SI and it is, uh, it sounds corny, but the longer I do it, the more appreciative I get to, you know, to, to be logging 15, 16 seasons now and, and there's a rhythm to it. And then when you get to late October and this time of year, there is always a, a pretty neat energy because the, the games are back, the storylines are set and you're going to actually see just how things unfold. Well, first, I'm proud of the Athletic for covering teams outside of Los Angeles. That's, I'm impressed by the, the the thought there. It's nice of uh, it's nice of our bosses to do that. All right, this, Sam, as you know, this is a media specific or media oriented, more uh, uh, accurately, podcast. So I want to start off with this the the biggest story, far and away, 
prior to the run-up of the regular season has been the nexus of China and the NBA, the reaction of the league to Daryl Morey's comments initially and where it eventually went, and then, of course, how players have reacted or have commented on this, and, and most notably LeBron James. So let's start here. In your opinion, how much will China consume the coverage of the NBA this season? You know, it's hard to handicap it. Um, you know, I thought that it was, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought it was dying down about a week ago. LeBron put a bunch of kerosene on that fire and got it going again. Adam Silver sat down with Robin Roberts in that time event where, you know, his quotes certainly made headlines, where he had shared with the world that the Chinese government had pressured him to fire Daryl Morey. Even more gasoline for the fire, Chinese government got upset. So, I mean, my early read would be that I, I don't think that it's going to go away at all. Uh, and I think a lot of times what will possibly flare it up is going to be, uh, you know, either people within the NBA saying something that is, uh, you know, going to cause a reaction, or you've got all these other moving parts when it comes to this story that could have a ripple effect on the league and then spark the conversation again that way, whether it's another company, you know, having its own kind of conflict yet again with Chinese government and, and the way they're doing things. And, you know, the laundry list of companies we're talking about, the Apples, Blizzards, Mercedes, Versace, uh, all the way down the line, uh, or the government politics side. You know, last week the House passed uh, with flying colors, uh, you know, the, democracy and human rights bill um, in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. And so Washington, D.C., on both sides of the aisle, has for now made its stance very clear that, you know, if they're picking sides here, it's going to be on the Hong Kong side. And that certainly has not been received well by the Chinese government. So the NBA is, is a bit player in this whole thing, which is crazy to say because of the scope of their business and their league. But uh, because of all those things, I mean, certainly the story is not going away. Sam, I, I want to get your thoughts on this because this is I, this is how I think it's going to play out a little bit, and I, you can certainly agree or disagree. But it is in the interest of ESPN and Turner not to. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say to avoid the story because I don't think they can, but it is certainly in their interest not to be aggressive with the China story. Conversely whether it's uh, the New York Times or Washington Post or Athletic or name your other news organization, they, they don't, they're not rights partners with the league, and they're going to ultimately decide whatever their writers, reporters, and story editors decide. So my thought is that I think the biggest players here, ESPN and Turner, are going to try to mitigate this, where I think I could see the story continuing from sources outside of those places, including non-sports publications, which I think have a very vested interest in the China news. How do you see that? No, I'm with you on all that. I mean, the ESPN Turner thing is very real. Um, you know, I mean, it doesn't take you long in our media circles to run into a colleague from one of those places who will candidly kind of shrug and say, yeah, I mean, we're on the sidelines for the most part in this one. And, and that doesn't mean they have zero presence. Um, I, I wish I had listened to this already because I could speak better on it, but I know that our friend and colleague, uh, Zach Lowe had addressed the China situation on his podcast. I 
it seemed that that got pretty positive reviews as far as how Zach handled it. I'm sure that was tricky for him. And, um, I mean, that's the, the irony of the story is that here we are, you know, critically analyzing the NBA and its business interest and how that, you know, how that fits and reconciles or maybe doesn't with its own values or perspectives. But media companies are facing the same challenge. And, and I think for the independent outlets that you kind of outlined, um, the other thing that is in real time being determined is a combination of what kind of tone does each place want to set for the coverage, you know, make sure you're, you know, informed, balanced, all the things that are tenants of what we try to do. But then also just being real about life and business, there's that, like you and I exchanged a few messages last week about curiosities regarding like these stories on China for us. And essentially like are people reading them uh, and how, you know, you know, really to call a spade a spade, like how successful quote unquote were they from a business standpoint? And so that's going to always be part of the calculus too. And um, for us, I mean, it's, it is interesting because it's obviously extremely, it's an incendiary topic where the comment section is on fire. Uh, but people are certainly interested to the point of reading it. They might not enjoy every single thing they read, but they are diving in and, and absorbing the coverage. And so uh, again, from, you know, that is going to compel a lot of these companies, even, you know, us included to, to keep making sure we, cover the story. Yeah, well said. And this will be the last thing on China. It's just worth noting, obviously, Sam and I both work for The Athletic. And there was a story that we had where the comments were disabled. Uh, the discussion was uh, really, really toxic on there. But um, there were people who criticized us. And I think that criticism was fair. And the comments were since restored on those stories but sam is correct in that like it you know it's a lot for companies to sort of figure out including something that you might not think about is just how far do you let a comment section go where it disrupts the readers of their enjoyment or sort of um you know sort of not to be bullied if they have a certain political opinion so it's a lot of uh it's a lot of moving parts that a lot of these companies have to deal with. Um, all right, Sam, moving from China, one of the interesting things about the NBA this year, I think really, really interesting, is the the notion that there's much more parity in 2019 than we've ever seen before. The, the Warriors era ended in Toronto. It was an incredibly successful era, I would say, for the NBA, if you want to judge it on um, television viewership, if you want to judge it on awareness, star power. And now we're entering a different scenario where, you know, it seems like legitimately six, seven, eight teams might have a chance to win the NBA title. How do you think that plays out just in terms of interest in the league, coverage in the league, where there's not a dominant superpower at the moment? I think it's it's refreshing. I mean, I did enjoy the heck out of covering that dominant Warriors era. And certainly because I live about 90 minutes from Oakland, I was there back in the days when, it, you know, Steph Curry was trying to fight for time with Monte Ellis and, you know, get on the floor. And, uh, and then Joe Lacob announces uh, the Andrew Bogut trade to the crowd at Oracle Arena, gets booed off the floor. Rick Barry is fighting for him. You know, fast forward, and these guys are racking up three championships and five straight trips to the finals. And every year, accurate or not, the perception was that they were invincible 
and there was only one dog in this fight. And that part being gone is good for the league. It's just a fact. You know, the parody is good. You know, there's a fascinating tipping point of the summer in that respect where when Kawhi Leonard's figuring out where he wants to play in free agency, you know, there was a very real moment in time where people around the league thought that it was going to be the Lakers, and then you probably would have had another version of the Warriors just down the California coast because the idea of Anthony Davis with LeBron James and Kawhi together would have been, you know, that would have been quote-unquote unfair just like the Warriors were. So that doesn't happen, and not only does Kawhi go to the Clippers, he brings Paul George with him. Um, you know, I don't know how long my list is of legitimate title contenders, but even, you know, right out the gates in the regular season, and we talked about this at the top, like the idea that we have some reporters going to L.A. and I'm going to go ahead and go to Houston, we're not really sure where to go. You know what I mean? Because we don't know which team deserves our attention the most. And Russell Westbrook going to Houston revives that story, and I don't know if it's going to work. I'm kind of falling on the side and thinking it will work. But, uh, you know, from there you're talking about the Milwaukee Bucks, the Sixers, you know, a lot of squads that, that have a lot of reason to be fired up. And I think it's good for the league. You're going to have more fan bases engaged at a pretty high level from beginning to end because it's one thing when your team's going for a playoff spot late in the year and, and the casual fan emerges at that point and, and starts tuning in and things like that. This is more to me that if you think your team really has a shot at winning it all, you pay attention all the way through because you got to see how they evolve. And there's no way that's bad for business. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sam, what's the most interesting team to you in the NBA this year and why? Um... I mean, it's a close race. Um, let's see, which one would I pick? I mean, it's going to be, I mean, I guess I'll look at the Rockets. I've, I've been around them a lot the last few years. And the James, you know, pre-Chris Paul version, James Harden flying solo with Eric Gordon in that backcourt and becoming a year-in, year-out MVP candidate, doing incredible things. But then he, you know, he clearly needs help. Chris Paul has had his, you know, head beat in by the Warriors in Clipperland for years and years, and so Chris navigates his way to Houston. Um, you know, this whole entire era is all about the way the Warriors just kept making, you know, basically forcing people to, to up and reroute and reroute and change their rosters. And so to see the Rockets go from that version to the CP version to this thing with Russ. I think the Russ thing is incredibly interesting because if you talk to analytics heavy folks within the league, they have wide eyes and, and kind of a smirk on their face like, no way this works. You've got two guys with the highest usage rate in the history of basketball. You still have one basketball on the floor. Uh, how in the world could this offense work with any sort of synergy? But on the human side, which is what I was kind of love making sure that we integrate into coverage. You got two guys who have legitimately been friends since they were, you know, like toddlers. I mean, they grew up in LA together, played AU ball together. 
um, there's deep, deep ties there. The OKC chapter together where with Kevin Durant, you're just coming out of nowhere, getting to the finals against the Heat. At that point, obviously, James Harden coming off the bench. And then, you know, you know the story from there. But I talked to, uh, to Steph Curry about the Rockets the other day because I was curious to get his read. And I thought it was interesting. He, he endorsed the idea that as a star, that having another star who is a, a very real friend of yours would matter. And he wasn't sitting there saying how many games he thought the Rockets would win, but he was buying into that concept that the friendship between Russ and James will play a part. I mean, that opinion is even more interesting if we remember what he's coming off you know, the heels of last season, where Kevin Durant chooses to go to Brooklyn, and anybody who's been around the Warriors knows that, you know, had Steph and Kevin, like, they are, they are friends. You know, I'm not trying to say they're not, but had they had the kind of deeper roots that somebody like Russ and James, you know, do, then who knows if that dynamic would have been different because uh, in the end, Kevin clearly felt like he'd never got his just due with the Warriors. And and so they kind of splintered. So with all those things being taken into account, I just think Houston is going to be a a must watch all the way through. All right, Sam, you know this, obviously, since you're out there, Los Angeles is basically will be the center of the NBA universe this year, given all the star players on the Lakers and the Clippers. Because of that, do you anticipate anything different when it comes to access or the ability to cover those teams compared to someone's ability previously before this, uh, you know, this group of stars have come in? Really good question. And I don't know the answer to that just yet. Uh, my early read, just being candid here, is that this is counterintuitive, but I actually think the Lakers are going to probably be more accessible and potentially mildly better this season than last year. And, and if I'm, kind of psychoanalyzing them as a group, I think, and this is full disclosure, having just spent four days in LA and talked to their people quite a bit. I think that, I mean, they are coming off one of the toughest seasons from a coverage standpoint in the organization's history, the magic Johnson saga, you know, Rob Palenka getting absolutely taken to task for, you know, all you know, different points during the year. Um, I got a sense that the combination of them, feeling better about themselves because of Anthony Davis and then also trying to mend some media fences, if you will. And this is what you've trafficked in so well for so long is like getting inside what we do. And that was the vibe was like, it was, it was a fairly friendly vibe. It was a fairly collaborative vibe. <clears throat> and I think it was all with the, the knowledge that they plan on winning a whole lot of basketball games and, they would love it if, you know, as much positivity is reflected in their story as possible. So that's the Lakers side. <clears throat> the Clippers side, uh, again, maybe this changes. The early read is there's a lot of buzz about about how, man, like times have changed, um, not necessarily for the better when it comes to accessibility with the Clippers. It's, it's almost like, you know, I know there was, there was a, a lot of feedback from their training camp in Hawaii that access was not very good and it was tough to get work done and a growing sense among reporters that it was, you know, are they already kind of changing their stripes because they're, they're essentially the hottest story in the league because of what they pulled off last summer. Now, maybe that's short lived. Um, maybe I'll get a phone call for sharing this on your pod, which is fine. But I mean, that's the feedback right now. And, you know, to the point where a very, very long tenured reporters have been, you know, who've been in LA a, lo- a very long time were surprised, like, man, this is a new day when when the Clippers are, you know, tougher to deal with than maybe even the Lakers. 
Wow, that's uh, that's disappointing to hear. Given the, the the Clippers sort of at least put out there that you know money's no object. They're trying to get the best of everything. That should extend, in my opinion, to public relations and access and getting their story out there and making the players available. So that's actually well, that's I appreciate you saying that. Throw a, Go ahead. No, sorry. I, I, to throw a quick disclaimer on it, um, I'm sp- that's specifically re- relating to kind of the boots on the ground reporting in the locker room, players, coaches. Um, you know. Gotcha. Okay, understand. That's so. I mean, like yeah. for me, I mean, listen, we myself and and Jovan Buha at the Athletic put together a story back in July that if you go back and read it, it was how the Clippers got Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Certainly the type of story that you simply can't write if there's not a pretty high level of, of willingness from the inside on the Clippers to share perspectives. So there's layers to this. Uh, but in terms of the, the, you know, I'm talking how long the locker room's open, how many players are available on a day in day out basis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious to see how that functions going forward. All right, appreciate that clarification. I understand that. All right, a couple more here, Sam, before I let you go. Um, it's a really interesting season, it feels like, for LeBron James, given how last year ended with the injury, given Anthony Davis has arrived, uh, you know, Danny Green, and other pretty interesting veterans. He, um, you know, you never, LeBron James' statistics would tell you that he's certainly, I don't think, close to the finish line. At the same time, Sam, when you're in your mid-30s, it's just a reality that you're not the same athlete you were in the NBA that you were in your mid-20s. So how important is this year, in your opinion, for LeBron James, whether you want to judge it on, um, like, I hate the word legacy, but sort of him in a historical level, where he is sort of psychologically, where he is in terms of his aspirations in basketball. I find this year for LeBron particularly fascinating and maybe more fascinating than some of the last couple of years. No, I agree for sure. The one thing it's funny because the commentary that, you know, you made on him as an athlete in his age, that is, that's life. Right. I also wonder, like, I, it, this would actually be a great story. I wish we could convince LeBron to go through a battery of tests where the results would be shared publicly um, relating to his athleticism. And I would like to see, Vertical, I would like to see speed because I watching him from the eyeball test, I'm not ready to say that he's not the same athlete. The dude just looks unbelievable, and he doesn't look like he's slowed down. He doesn't. No, he, you know, he certainly takes long breathers on defense and does things to pace himself. But he he looks like a guy who, if I was competing against him and I was 21 years old, I would still be in, incredibly intimidated by his prowess. So he still has that going for him and then now he's got a co-star again and one that is you know i don't think this is hyperbole this is the best co-star he's ever had um you know d wade and chris bosh were great the trio did some good things in miami you know Kyrie, kevin love i'm I'm gonna take ad over all of them so you've got a great co-star and then you have the narrative you have the idea that you just sat on your couch so to speak from mid-april to mid-october and while you heard the world talk about how you weren't part of the playoff party for the first time in forever. And then, you know, spinning it forward, now you have a chance to make real noise in a Lakers jersey. Because it's it's two conversations to me, Richard. Like, LeBron's legacy, to a to an extent, is already set. Like, he can retire today, and we sit there and he preys upon him until the end of time. 
But if that was the case, the LA chapter would be remembered as essentially something where he chose lifestyle reasons um, to get to LA and to be in LA and then certainly played at a high level individually, but accomplished nothing collectively. If he's able to play into June and be a real factor again and remind everybody who he is, I mean, it certainly could be a fantastic cherry on top to his story. And and not only that, if he can kind of fight through what the Clippers are building and, and wind up still having the best team in LA, if not the entire league, then that would be his storybook ending. And I have a little bit of recency bias again, because I was just there, but I will say, man, I mean, their roster just, they look really, really good. And, you know, there's a few players on that squad that if Quinn Cook can take a step forward and give them some of the shooting that they're short on, um, different things like that, a couple of ifs that could help them out. They're, they're a huge, massive team. They have a ton of size. And, and I just think they're going to roll through a lot of teams this year, and I'm dying to see where they finish up. How important is it for the NBA for LeBron's team to be successful? One thing we saw last year was um, LeBron moving west changed a lot of viewership in terms of the East Coast uh, early sort of single part of the East Coast doubleheader. And then when LeBron obviously uh, didn't play for the latter part of last season, because the Lakers are a national team, because they're on television, it really hurt, I thought, the NBA product. So it strikes me, Sam, that he is still the most important player in the league when it comes to awareness, viewership, et cetera. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. Because it's certainly, you know, Kawhi Leonard asserted himself as, from a basketball-only perspective, the king of the mountain last June with what he did. And that's all well and good, but people are still not tuning in to watch Kawhi at anywhere near the degree that they are LeBron. So this is a funny, quick side anecdote that I think speaks to what you're hitting on. Um, I uh, I was sitting around the house the other day watching a little weekend television with my wife, and it was the show, uh, I think it's called The Masked Singer. Have you seen this reality show? Yeah, I've heard, yeah right, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it, right. So so here's what got my attention. These these famous people put on costumes and masks, and you obviously can't tell who they are, and they sing, and you try to, the, the panel, which is, uh, you know, all famous folks, they try to figure out who's singing. So Victor Oladipo was behind the mask, fantastic voice, knocking it out of the park. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, that's awesome. And it's a, it's a cool thing to watch because I cover the NBA, but he's not famous enough to be on that show because no one was guessing him because they don't mainstream doesn't know who he is. Well, they were guessing LeBron James. Of course they were guessing LeBron. And, you know, that's the kind of calculus or the threshold. Like, we, we forget sometimes, just in general, that because we're in our NBA bubble, like what it takes to have your name and your profile pop in the mainstream. And that's where LeBron gets you ratings. That's where LeBron remains the number one draw in the NBA. The Warriors were the number one draw before because they had the collective thing going, the star power of Steph, Kevin Durant jumping on board, all of those things. Um, the NBA has got to be ecstatic with the way this whole landscape looks right now, because it would have been bad for them if LeBron got no help. If let's say Rob Palenka couldn't pull off that AD trade. And so LeBron went into this season with, you know, puppy dog sadness and, and having no help. And, and he was on his way to another 35 win campaign. Um, this is perfect. This is, he's going to be a factor. The ratings should go up. They have dipped a bit recently. 
I know Ethan Strauss, uh, also at The Athletic with us, wrote a good piece about that recently. But, but yeah, I think not only will he draw eyeballs, but you would think in year two of him being in L.A. that East Coast viewers, you know, kind of wrapped their heads around that finally and figured out their own viewing habits, you know, with the time change, you know, what do they need to do to, to pay attention to him on the West Coast a little bit more than maybe they did last season. So I, I, I would assume the ratings go up a bit here. Yeah, by the way, LeBron James, 6'8", 250. Victor Oladipo, 6'4", 210. Maybe, yes. maybe get a maybe, – maybe, maybe do a little research, judges. Well, that's, that's, that was mentioned. Uh, Nick Carter is the host, and, and he had a pretty good little grin on his face of confusion when LeBron was, uh, was being guessed. He's like, yeah, this guy's a lot smaller than LeBron. <laughs> yeah, if you, had the, uh, if you ever see, and as you have many times, LeBron James – close up in person uh, i mean it's like the guy just is sculpted from like you know oh, yeah. the greek gods it's literally he's, it's, he's it's just, like he just a, it's not it's not it's character. it's abnormal for a 6 8 250 pound guy to be that uh fast athletic and just just i mean that's just a he's he's a once in a lifetime athlete crazy i think so oladipo is great but he he's not LeBron. No, yeah oladipo's your standard nba <laughs> fit strong just not massive. Exactly. I was going to say, to hit on your point, the other day, I don't know if you saw this on social media, but I was at Lakers practice, and they uh, they essentially wanted to just kind of have a change of pace with their routine. So we get to the facility, and as I'm getting up in my, my lift, just getting a ride to the, the facility, the entire Lakers team was on the football field across the street from the Lakers facility, and certainly that gets your attention and everybody in the media is looking over there, figuring out what's going on. So they conducted like a casual football practice on this field. that's right by the facility. And LeBron is out there with the rest of the guys. And, you know, as they mostly always are all the time, you know, nobody's got a shirt on and LeBron is taking passes from Danny green, whoever else will chuck the ball his way. And I'm watching this dude just, his long strides, like he's, you know, a huge version of Jerry Rice out there. He's catching balls with one hand. You know, I mean, we forget just how incredible these guys are athletically. And, uh, and you can see it out there. I mean, the guy's an absolute phenomenon. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by um, the highest caliber athletes in one sport. When they transfer to another sport, some of them are incredible. And you, you sort of think to yourself, you know, if these guys just would have gone in the, this sport uh, when they were young, you know, they could be an all pro like I'm sure if LeBron started in, I know he played football for a little bit, but let's say that guy played football from, you know, from a young seven, six, eight, nine, went to all the camps and just dedicated to football. I mean, it seems like it can't miss, you know, all pro tight end. What's interesting, Sam, though, is when you have, and this happens too. I know you've seen this when you have these professional athletes in one sport and you transfer them to a sport that maybe they haven't played a lot, like something like tennis or ping pong, and they're not that good. Kind of like is like so it's like interesting. It sort of like makes you realize about the specialization in a sport. It probably just as a human being makes you happy that oh man, you know maybe I can beat Victor Oladipo in ping pong or something like right. that. But it's a it's always fascinating to me that sometimes they'll cross over, and you know a, a basketball player will go to baseball and the guy can hit the ball like you know like Aaron Judge. But then you take that same guy and you bring him to. Again, some sport he's never tried before, you know, badminton or something like crazy like that. And there, you know, you can get a six-year-old to beat him. It's always it's interesting that way. It is, it is. Uh, all the, to that point, uh, we're you know, rumor on the street as far as ping pong goes. I think Nikola Jokic. Speaking of guys who don't 
look like, you know, LeBron James level athletes, uh, Jokic is a, is a hell of a ping pong player. So a little bit of a role reversal there. I'm not sure how he'd be as a, as a wideout. I don't think he'd be burning past any DBs, but, but Jokic is allegedly a hell of a ping pong player. Yeah. By the way, uh, anyone sort of Europe, uh, and sort of any country connected to Europe, if I'm an NBA guy, don't play those guys in ping pong. Likely you're going to get beat. That'd be my, my, my prediction. Um, all right, Sam, is there anything else you wanted to add? You did hit a little bit on ratings, and I did read Ethan's piece. Um, I, 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 my instinct is that ratings are going to be up a little bit this year. I think they're going to surprise people, but I'm not basing that on anything other than a gut feeling because I can make the argument honestly both ways as to why ratings would drop again or ratings would go up. I do think most importantly the NBA schedule makers and I know you guys you know this these guys from the league office. They have done a lot of smart things in terms of moving up tip-up times in the east, moving reducing tip-off times in the west, um trying to make sure that like all the west coast teams don't only start at 10:30 eastern. Like I think they've done some scheduling things that are going to be statistically enough to pop the ratings up but you know at the same time the the play dictates stuff and if you have stars get injured just like the nfl numbers are going to go down no for sure in fact uh, there's a column on our site today from joe varden about how zion williamson's injury kind of wrecked months and months of planning on the schedule makers part that was all intended with getting as many eyeballs as possible towards that young talent so he gets hurt for the Pelicans and he's on the shelf for a number of weeks. And so that, that jams up what you were hoping to accomplish, you know, with that squad and that star early on. So, I mean, there's an entire podcast to be had to talk about schedule making our buddy, Howard Beck at Bleacher Report actually does that once a year with folks from the NBA on, on the kind of the science and the magic behind figuring out the schedule. But you're right that it is always going to be dependent on the results, you know, early on last season, when the Lakers and Rockets had fisticuffs at Staples Center, you know, Rajon Rondo, Chris Paul getting into it, punches thrown, um, that's going to hike up ratings, and that's going to get people's attention at a time of year when, when otherwise they're kind of just waiting to see how the playoff picture unfolds. Sam Amick is a national NBA writer for The Athletic and uh, previously worked with me at Sports Illustrated as well as USA Today and the Sacramento Bee. Um, he'll be covering... Uh, pretty much every team in the league as a national writer for the athletic. He um, doesn't stick to any specific team, even though he's based in Northern California. And if you want to follow Sam's work, in addition to the athletic, if you are on social media, if you're on Twitter, uh, it's at Sam underscore A M I C K at Sam underscore A M I C K and highly recommend Sam's work. Hey Sam, man, very good of you to come on uh, as uh, a day before the regular season tips off and, uh, Continued uh, success, continued uh, continue to bring in um, subscriptions for us, uh, Sam. Because I my landlord, my landlord, <laughs> you, and, yeah, my landlord, it. my landlord enjoys the money. So please continue to do your fine work, Sam. Sam yeah, nice. Amick, very good. Likewise, the, my friend. Likewise, yes, appreciate you. I'll, I'll do my best, Sam Amick of the Athletic. Good to catch up with you, Sam. I'm sure we'll talk soon. You got it. Thanks, Richard. Bye bye. All right, as I said at the top, uh, we have a little sort of special segment, if you want to call it, 
Teletwellman and Ian Dark are in Toronto, which everybody on this podcast knows is where I live. And so we're doing, I almost never do this, but I will do a sort of a live interview with these two because they've been gracious enough to talk to me for The Athletic. And so we'll get a little sound from them. Uh, I mean, if you can get Ian on a, um, sound, it's fantastic. Taylor, of course, is just sort of the addendum to this. He comes along with the, the ride. I'm his driver. Yeah, that's true. Um, all right, so here's where I want to start with you guys. You have developed, I think, objectively, really good chemistry. You seem to like each other, at least sort of in my own like quick observation of you. So, Ian, how did that develop? Is uh, You've worked with a lot of analysts. Does it just happen? Does chemistry happen? Or do you have to forge it? And if so, how does it, how, how does it come about? Um, I wish I could give you some kind of magic answer to that. By the way, thank you for the, the charming introduction. I, I'm, I'm going to struggle to live up to that. Um, no, I think it does kind of just happen. I think with some people, there is a clash or there's a coldness or uh, things break down on air. But I think with Taylor, since he started, which was how many years ago now? Nine years ago. Yeah, nine years ago. Um, it's kind of grown into something. I know when he's going to come in or when he wants to make a point almost instinctively now because I've worked with him so long and he knows the kind of stuff that, that I like to do as well. So, yeah, I think the the best chemistries are the ones you don't really have to work at. Yeah, I mean, I think from my point of view, Richard, I think you have to observe from afar. But me having an American sports background and understanding – watching other sports and realizing that majority of American sports, it's analyst-driven. Soccer's kind of the opposite. So when I got into this business, luckily for me, ESPN gave me like 14 different play-by-play guys my first two years. Hmm. So I saw the good, the best, and then some guys that that didn't work well with me. So chemistry, it's either you got it or you don't. You can work on it, make no mistake about it. But I think from the opening day, either you got it or you don't. And when I was sitting in the truck uh, driving to stadiums, um, I wasn't the the color commentator with Ian. I was on the desk with Alexi, Rob Stone, Max Bredos, um, and those guys. And I would just listen to how Ian called the game, and then you try to observe and say, oh, well, maybe I'll do this here, that here. But the truth of the matter is 70% of the game, it's Ian Dark, it's John Champion, it's Adrian Healy. I've got to find my way to get in there. I'm just lucky that he makes it easier than some other guys. Ian's one of the best at making it feel like you're at a bar, you're talking the game, and the viewers at home are listening. Ian, one of the uh, things that's always been interesting to me, and a lot of readers sometimes ask this, is they can understand chemistry between two people of similar ages or similar generations. What's very interesting is when the chemistry exists when somebody is older, younger, or... um, uh, whatever, mixed genders or different backgrounds. You guys are obviously of different generations, but and not to mention born in different places, but it seems to work. Um, again, in your experience, does that stuff matter uh, in terms of difference in ages or can you overcome that for if, if whatever, if the chemistry is there? Yeah, I think you can, actually. I'm probably about 25 years older than Taylor. I live in a different country. I usually work not covering Major League Soccer, uh, but I have covered the U.S. men's and women's team now for the best part of a, a decade. Um, and it's weird. I don't ring Taylor up too much between assignments, um, but we meet up when we're around these games and 
we get on with the job and and we've done it now for, for, for quite a long time. And it's quite nice, really, to be honest, because you, you never know when you're speaking on air how it's going down at all. Not a clue, except maybe a bit of reaction on social media afterwards. And I'm very gratified that people seem to like it. Taylor, what is it about Ian? Why does it work with Ian uh, as compared to, let's say, um, some of the other partners? I'm not saying it didn't work, but what, in your opinion, why has this worked? Well, when you talk about athletes, uh, Richard, you see, you often hear this description, either he or she has it or they don't. Right. Ian could have his shirt buttoned backwards. He could have a sandwich all over his face. He could not have his notes. And the moment the red light goes on, it's as if he was meant to do that. That's the greatest compliment I can give him because I could literally sit there and go, Ian, I, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Then all of a sudden the red light comes on and it's as if, again, you're sitting at a bar, we're talking about the game, and I think that's the greatest compliment to anyone's chemistry is I cannot hear from Ian for four months. We show up to U.S., Canada, and Toronto, and it's as if he's been here the entire time. And yet – I think that's also a credit to ESPN because I actually think it makes the broadcast better that we're actually different mm. because you do get different perspectives. And honestly, yeah, we, we are different personalities. We're different. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention one of you played. Yeah, right. but, but, yeah. but even so, Ian's been well, around and I seen the game. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, walk, and walking football. And walking it was football, good. Walking football is good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's actually the I'm leading goal scorer in walking I football. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it all, all kidding aside, Richard, I think when you, I, I think it makes the broadcast better. We, we argue and, and, and analyze and debate a lot of things. Now, we're mindful that we don't want to do that for 90 minutes because the viewer's going to be like, dude, really? Like, stop. But I like Ian in the fact that he can say, you know what, Taylor, I disagree with you. I think that's when you know yeah. there's a confidence in our relationship that neither yeah. of us are going to get upset. And I actually think it makes the broadcast better. Yeah, and I don't think it should sound like a mutual admiration society. And, and, and also, I don't think it, the humor, if there is any, right. should ever be forced. Yes. I don't, it's not a vaudeville act. It should be something that just naturally occurs. I mean, he might bring in, I mean, there's a, the famous story where I left my car engine running <laughs> for the entire duration <laughs> of, of a game, which Taylor brought brought in. But, you know, all the reaction afterwards wasn't about the game, which happened to yeah. be a, a very dull goal of straw, That's but about my car engine. <laughs> and I've never been allowed to forget it. But little things like that, I think the viewers like. And I think if yeah. you can bring a bit of personality to it, I think that's good. What I'd say, uh, since we are doing a bit of a mutual admiration yeah. society here about Taylor, and I've worked with guys who've been the analysts and my co-commentator who haven't really done their research on a game. Now, Taylor has done his research very, very thoroughly, not only about the game, and he and I think he performs the number one thing you need from the analyst and somebody who played the game uh, at the top level, and that is he's going to tell you something. I can watch a thousand games, mm -hmm. but he's going to tell me something that only a professional who's played the game at that level can see, and I think that's really the number one. Two more from me. Um, is your broadcast, in your opinion, different if it's a Euro uh qualifier let's say or a euro final versus a u.s game or an mls game do you think what you are watching changes how the viewer hears your broadcast uh ian doesn't um but i'm i'm, I'm lying to you if i said that when john brooks scored a header u.s ghana the fact that i wore the jersey you've got to be very mindful that the viewer doesn't fully want to hear the red white and blue 
Uh, I tried to grab my microphone. I didn't grab it in time. I screamed when the goal hit the back of the net. Um, I think I'm fairly objective with the United States. I'm actually overly critical, I think, because I want the viewer to understand I'm not a fanboy. I'm not rooting for it. Ian's never changed his call. We could call Peru against Bolivia. We could call U.S. versus Mexico. He may be a little bit more excited for U.S. Mexico. You are talking about the guy who came out with Go, yes. Go, USA. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't ask me point. how that came up. Good point. That, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed about that call now if I'm honest I, I get nice uh, things about it sent to me the go go USA thing but it's kind of embarrassing to listen to now because it sounds so ridiculously biased but in that moment yeah it was right in that moment but only in that moment now when Ian calls an England game then you may <laughs> want to not not really he's kind of upset with England more often than yeah. that. England Iceland that was a real enjoyable you, moment for you, you you kind of overcorrect that's that's what happens yeah. I think he does that a little bit with the yeah. USA he so wants them to yeah. be you know make bridge this gap and join the world elite that you can be almost overcritical about the team yes. and and maybe the expectation levels are get a bit mm-hmm. too high the last one for me is um and taylor i think you given you work at espn given you have a lot of colleagues who do different sports it's always been my thought that the hardest graders when it comes to viewers are soccer viewers i think like sec football viewers are probably up there and then there's some others you know, you can pick and choose some fan bases, but having covered this for a long time, I, I don't think there are more critical eyes or critical viewers than soccer viewers. Generally speaking, he, I think, is sort of um, the exception in that I think generally more positive feedback on social media than negative. But from both of your experiences, and Taylor, particularly you, um, have you found that as well, that just it, there are people who are listening intently a name is mispronounced they're really really mad something tactically isn't given correctly they're really really mad and i feel it's more um it's much stronger in soccer than it is i would argue in almost any other sport that's aired in the states i completely agree with you uh ask dave o'brien Ask Gus Johnson, right. right? Guys that tried to get into the sport of soccer, and if you ask both of them off the record, they would both probably tell you it was a very difficult time of their professional career dealing with it. I think you bring up an interesting uh, section of our college football. I think SEC fans, is it, it's kind of close to that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you a quick story. So I played golf about 10 days ago. Uh, I show up at the first team, I'm running late. Uh, and some guy comes up, and he looks at me, and I open my mouth and said, hey, sorry, guys. And he goes, oh, I know that voice. And he's like, you do soccer. So he knew, couldn't put my name to, you know, the whole thing. And I said, yeah, yeah, I work at ESPN. You know, my name's Taylor. And he goes, oh, I can't stand you. This is October 5th, 6th. 2019, he remembered something I said about Glenn Johnson in the European Championships of 2012 when he was a Liverpool fan. To think that for seven years he had been (laughs) waiting, and I had many death threats that day on the European Championships about what I said about Glenn Glenn Johnson and that mistake he made. (laughs) Um, But that's also the beauty of the game, though. Richard, I think Ian will probably say it better. But that's the best part about our game is there's multiple, multiple ways to look at it. Where in American football, I think uh, basketball, so to speak, there's not a lot of ways to dissect a game and to look at it. And there's not a ton of nuance. There's a ton of nuance in the game of soccer football around the world Mm. that everyone then can have an opinion. And everyone can be right in a weird way. Yeah. 
I, I remember once the best bit of advice I ever got when I started broadcasting was from a quite a famous broadcaster in, in the, the UK called Terry Wogan. And he said, remember when you start the broadcast that 60% of the audience will think that you're an idiot. Just try to make sure that by the end of it, the other 40% don't agree. And that's about it, I think. It's great. All right, guys, thank you very much for uh, a very entertaining 12 minutes or so. You're also the pilot... Uh, you're, the, you're, the, you're my pilot guest to see if this actually works. Literally doing this in person, Taylor, as opposed to, you know, when we did our yeah. our memorable podcast. I mean, people, they're still talking about this in, you know, Bora Bora, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. No one, Ian, is talking about the podcast Taylor and I did. And that's mostly on me. All right, Taylor and Ian, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, we're, we're, I'm doing this uh, seven hours or so before these guys call U.S. Canada. So have a, uh, have a great call. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks buddy. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Sam Amick and uh, Taylor Twelman and Ian Dark for coming on the podcast today. Interviewed Ian and Taylor at a hotel in Toronto. And uh, and as I get better equipment up here, uh, we'll do more of that. When well-known people in the media come up to the city, um, I'll bring the, uh, the equipment out and we'll see what we can do. Prior to this podcast, James Andrew Miller on ESPN in China. Before that, we had... Um, uh, I thought a really honest uh, podcast with four members of Sports Illustrated who were laid off and what happened there, uh, what they hope for their future, and what they expect of Sports Illustrated as that uh, as that brand heads forward with, um, I would say, some pretty questionable management. Before that, Adnan Burke and ESPN's Ivan Maisel and John Dahl. Before that, Jane McManus and Katie Strang on the nexus of covering mental health and sexual assault in sports. And uh, Garrett Graff, the author of The Only Plane in the Sky and Our All History of 9-11. Head down that list if you like this kind of content. Please uh, leave us a five-star review and a rating. It uh, it all helps. For uh, Patrick Antonetti, for everybody at Cadence 13, uh, Chris Corcoran, John McDermott, Spencer Brown, Sean Cherry, etc. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.